My first date, I remember it, and it was in college. And for the sake of protecting her identity, we're just going to call this girl Jane. Her name was not Jane at all. Uh, but we're going to call her Jane. So I was with this girl named Jane, and I, uh, I asked her to go out with me. She said yes, surprisingly. And I, uh, I decided to go to this Italian restaurant in town and pick up some sandwiches, and then go pick her up. And then we went uh, to this lake that was about 10, 10 minutes, 10 miles away from our campus. And so we had this perfect little picnic next to the water, and it was perfect weather and perfect conversation. It was all just great. And uh, when we got back, we decided, yeah, you know, we'll hang out some more. So we started hanging out a little bit more and a little bit more. And a couple weeks in, you know, three weeks in, we're hanging out. And at some point, though, in every relationship, you come to a place where you got to have this conversation called a what? A DTR. What does DTR stand for? Define the relationship. Now, there's, there's two kinds of DTRs, okay? There's an early type, and there's, there's a, late, a later on in the relationship type. Now, the early kind of DTR is like this. The early one is the one where you're trying to decide, okay, so are we boyfriend and girlfriend? You know? uh, do you like me because I kind of like you? I dig your chili. Do you dig this chili? And, or uh, you know, do we update our Facebook statuses, say, in a relationship? You know, that's the first DTR. Now, I bet a bunch of you have probably had that first uh, DTR. Now, the second one is a little bit more serious. It happens later on in the relationship. The second one is the, is the DTR where you're asking the question, okay, so where is this going? I mean, th- is this serious? Uh, guys, this is the one where you're wanting to know if it's okay to drop the M word. Actually, the girls are probably wanting to drop the M word, not you. Uh, but this is the one where definitely the girls want to know, I mean, do they need to start preparing for some hardware that might be going on this finger? Um, so that's the late DTR. Now, with, with Jane, uh, I don't really remember the first DTR, but I do very vividly remember the second DTR. Uh, we were, it was, my, it was fall of my sophomore year in college, and we went on a trip with, uh, with a big group of people down to Houston, which is where Jane was from, and we stayed at Jane's family's house. So we hung out all weekend, all week, and, uh, <clears throat> and one night after everybody had gone to bed, uh, we're sitting in Jane's family's living room talking, having this conversation. And, uh, and so as we're hanging out talking, a conversation's going good, and then all of a sudden Jane says, we need to talk. <clears throat> uh, now, Anything that starts with we need to talk is probably not going to be a good thing. Uh, and when she said this, I didn't really know or quite understand at first where this was going. But, but as soon as I began to realize where this conversation was headed, uh, I, uh, I began to, my heart began to beat really rapidly. My hands began to sweat pretty profusely. My armpits began to sweat. My armpits don't normally sweat, but they began to that night. I got a little cotton mouth. Uh, it was kind of hard to swallow. I mean, if it had been any other circumstances and I had had these symptoms, you might have thought I got bit by a snake. Uh, but I was just freaking out when she said, we need to talk. And guys, when a girl says, we need to talk, especially in the context of a DTR, you cannot get out of the conversation. There's absolutely no way, way to leave it, so don't even try. So she says, we need, to, we need to talk. And she says, look, Austin, I just want to know, like, or I need to know, where is this going? Now, when she asked that question, initially I'm like, okay, that's, that's ambiguous enough for me to kind of skirt around uh, the answer. And so I'm about to respond. And before I could respond to this question, where is this going? She goes, she, she like cuts me off and she asked me this really direct question that was terrible. She said, Austin, do you love me? Um, so my response began like this, baby, look, you know, I care about you, right? Now I'm just going to stop here because <clears throat> before I even answered or had the chance to answer by starting like that, I had started the response wrong. I'd already answered completely wrong. The correct answer there is yes uh, or no, and you pick up everything you have and you run before she gets all you know emotional and crazy. And uh, but I said, I said, I said, baby, look, you know I care about you, right? And she's like, kind of you know, got her arms crossed, you know, tapping the foot like, you know, this isn't going to be good. And I said, love is a really big word, so 
I guess you could say I'm about like three fourths of the way there. I mean, like, like I, like I, I, I love, like I, I, lo- I love, I love you. But the E, but the E's not really there yet. Now, needless to say, the rest of the conversation from there didn't go very well at all. Uh, and I really don't have to say this either. The relationship didn't last too long after that. But when she started that conversation, here's what she wanted. First, she wanted to express to me, like, this is how I feel for you. But second, and probably a lot more importantly, she wanted me to turn around and tell her I feel the same way about her. DTRs, especially the second type of DTR, is a very significant place in a relationship. Because it's the point when you and the other person... I mean, you get in front of each other and you just lay out your most honest and most true feelings, right? But DTRs, they're always kind of awkward in the beginning because no matter how you both feel, it always catches you off guard. So it's like, we need to talk. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, like, are we really ready to talk? But it also takes a lot of guts to initiate a DTR. Because when you initiate a DTR, like, you're throwing everything out there. You're saying, this is how it is. And as you throw it out there, you're not really sure how they're going to respond. I mean, you hope they'll respond like you want. But the possibility of them rejecting you is out there. Tonight, we are exactly one month away from, from celebrating uh, the most important day in history. Um, exactly one month away. And, and so tonight, what I want to do is I want us to, uh, to take a step back from our study in James. And we're going to look in John chapter 13 tonight. Now, the book of John, which is the gospel, the story of Jesus according to John. John records the life and the ministry and the words of Jesus. And as you read through, what you, what you would see is when you come to chapter 13, you see this very drastic change in the ministry and in the, in the attitude and in the actions of Jesus. If you were to take the whole book as a whole and, 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 and really just look at it, kind of this aerial view, you would see that in chapter 13, something changes. It's almost like part one and part two. Part one is chapters one, two, one through 12 of the gospel. Part two is chapter 13 and, and on. Now, Jesus' intentions throughout the entire book are the same. But when you get to chapter 13, he becomes very deliberate in making sure that his intentions are clear. So if there was any question up to this point of what Jesus' intentions were in coming to earth and being here and doing ministry, in chapter 13, beginning of verse 1, it becomes very, very, very clear. So chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, Christ had always loved his disciples, but not just his disciples. Christ had always loved also the people that just, in general, the people that followed him and the people that he spent a lot of his time with. But here, what it says is now he showed them the full extent of his love. Some of your translations might say now he he loved them to the last or he loved them to the end or to the ultimate end. Or some might say he loved them to the extreme limits of love. It's from this point forward that Jesus says this is, or he shows them this is the full extent of my love. He defines the relationship. And just like any good DTR, the timing of the DTR is really, really important. It has to be just right. And when we get to chapter 13, the timing is just right. So chapter 13, again, verse 1. It says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Now, the disciples don't really have the privilege that we have of flipping a couple pages over. When you flip a couple pages over, what do you see happen? Jesus gets arrested, put on trial, and ultimately sentenced to death. He dies, and then he resurrects uh, from the dead. Now, the disciples had no idea that was about to happen. We see that's about to happen all within 24 hours of this that's unfolding in John chapter 13. 
But because the disciples had no clue that was about to happen, they really didn't understand the significance of the timing of everything that Jesus was about to do. For them, all they knew was that it was about to be the Passover. And so as they're about to celebrate the Passover, Jesus does this. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So here's the setting. It's evening and it's mealtime. And chances are these disciples have just gotten off of a long day of ministry together with Jesus. And really even more so, probably gotten off of this long week of ministry with Jesus. And so they show up to this house and they're hungry. It's the end of the day. They're hungry naturally. And the, oven, the, the oven's already going. They already got food cooking. And so they begin to smell the aroma of the food. And when you're really hungry after a long day of work and you smell food, I mean, you kind of become this ravenous monster because you want food, right? But the text also tells us that Judas, at this point, had already decided that he was going to betray Jesus. He was going to turn him into the authorities and so that he could eventually be arrested. So you still have all 12 disciples and you have Jesus. So now you've got, you got 13 guys showing up to this house. They're all hungry. They're about to sit down for a meal and have some quality bro time. But then Jesus, he gets up and he does something that catches everybody off guard. He gets up and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now I'm not sure we really understand when we read this, the significance of him getting up and washing his disciples' feet. If you've grown up in the church, then you've heard this story a lot. And I bet that most of us in here probably have grown up around the church, and we've heard this story quite a bit. So it kind of becomes cliche. You know, we read it, and we read it over it, we move on until something else catches our eye. And because of that, I don't think we really see, first of all, how disgusting it is for somebody, and in this case, Jesus, to wash somebody else's feet. But secondly, I'm not sure that we really see how how culturally this was a huge, huge deal. So I want to give you a little bit of background uh, on where this cultural activity of washing people's feet came from. And there's a few factors that play into it. One is this. Um, in this day in Palestine, most people traveled on foot. Now, there were a few situations like people might ride a donkey or ride a donkey cart or, you know, there's different things like that. But in general, most people traveled places on foot. And Palestine didn't have the nicest roads. Now, didn't we don't have very nice roads either. But Palestine's roads were way worse. They didn't have surfaced roads. I mean, it's just dirt. They, went, they didn't have clean roads. Because they didn't have surfaced roads, a lot of their roads were always covered with, with at least like one inch of dust or sometimes even two inches of dust. And then when it rained, what does that dust turn into? It turns into this nasty liquid mud. So you've got these dirty roads. Now, another factor that plays into it is the, the type of footwear that people would wear. They didn't have these cool Wolverine-type boots or these, uh, or these great hiking shoes that they could you know, wash off and, and set aside. They didn't have shoes like that. Most ordinary people wore these sandals. And when I think of the sandals that they wore, for whatever reason, y'all remember those about 10 years ago when Old Navy started pushing those $2, I think they were $2, really, really cheap flip-flops? That's what I think of. I mean, they were so cheap. Like, I remember I had a pair, and, uh, and I was at the movie with my family, and I think my sister or somebody was walking behind me, and they stepped on the back of my flip-flop, and the whole thing just, like, explodes. And so you have to go the rest of the day without a flip-flop. Like, cheap sandals. Now, obviously, they didn't have Old, Na Old Navy sandals at that point, but, uh, but they had some cheap sandals. And most people wore these cheap sandals. And so 
Like their feet had very little protection from the dirt or the dust or the mud. And so if they had been walking around all day, their feet eventually ended up being totally caked in this dirt, totally caked in this mud. And so considering those two factors, there's a third factor, and that's this. Because of the roads and because of their sandals, which in turn led to mud and dirt being caked on their feet, when they showed up to somebody's house, they couldn't just, they couldn't just take off their shoes and leave them to the side and walk in. They couldn't just kick the dirt off their feet or scrape it up against the, the curb or take a stick and rub it off. Because even if they cleaned off their shoes, once they took off their shoes, their feet were still caked in mud and caked in dirt. And so they'd end up tracking this unnecessary dirt into the house. So understanding that, at every house there was one of two things. If it was a rich person's house, then you had this servant or a slave there that had a bucket of water and a towel. And before you came in, that servant or that slave would get down and scrub your feet clean, and then you could go inside. But if it wasn't a rich person's house, which in the case of John 13, it wasn't. It was just an ordinary person's house, then all they had was a bucket outside, and somebody would take that bucket, whoever shows up, to go in the house, they would take the bucket, they'd go get water, fill it with water, come back, and then everybody would wash their own feet. So all that being said, for anyone in this setting to get up and to begin to wash these disciples' feet was a really big deal in their culture. Because not only was that person lowering themselves to a place where they're washing some rich people's feet, it was lower than that because these disciples and Jesus, they weren't rich people. So they're going really, I mean, they're, they're lowering themselves to the point of being willing to wash the feet of people who probably could have been low enough to be servants to wash other people's feet. You catch what I'm saying? Yet Jesus washes their feet. So, but before we get to that, here's what, ha- here's, what, here's what happens. When they get up to this house, you have the 12 disciples and Jesus. They walk up, and when they walk up, the first thing that happens is the 12 disciples, they begin to argue amongst themselves. Who's the greatest among us? And really, by arguing who's the greatest among us, they're really arguing who's the least among us. Because they want to find out who's the least, because they want to find out whose turn it is to go get the bucket, fill it up with water, and come back, and then everybody can wash their feet. Luke chapter 22, verse 24, is where you see that argument take place. And most people think that that argument really is happening in the same setting we read here in John 13. So they're arguing who's the greatest among us. And they can't figure it out amongst themselves, so they go to Jesus, their teacher, and they say, JC, who's the greatest among us? So they're basically asking, who's the least among us? And Jesus, who needs to go and get the bucket of water and fill it up and bring it back? And that's when Jesus does something that catches them all off guard. Jesus then, he takes off his outer garment. He grabs this towel. He wraps it around him. He goes and he picks up the bucket. And he takes it wherever he had to go take it to get it filled up with water. And then he brings it back. And when he brings it back, what does he do? he begins to get down on his knees and he starts to go to each disciple and begins to wash each of their feet, scrubbing their feet clean. Now imagine, imagine the change in the conversation when that begins to happen. I mean, imagine their faces on these disciples as Jesus, their teacher, gets on his knees and starts to scrub their feet. Imagine their emotions. I mean, this is their master. This is their teacher. One, one commentator, he says, people who are at all familiar with the first century culture will immediately recognize how socially inappropriate this behavior was. Never in Jewish, Greek, or even Roman society would a superior wash the feet of inferiors. Yet, that's exactly what Jesus does. And so he stoops down and he begins to wash their feet. And as he begins to wash their feet, dead silence, no more argument. They're just quiet. 
They don't really know what to do. Until we get to Peter. And in verse 6, we see how Peter responds. Verse 6 says, he came to Simon Peter. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I think this is kind of interesting what Peter does. After Jesus has washed a couple of guys' feet, feet, he gets to Peter. And when he gets to Peter, Jesus says, whoa, 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 hold on, you're going to wash my feet. Now imagine that Peter, whether he's sitting there or lounging there or whatever, he kind of probably pulls his foot, like Jesus goes to grab his foot, and, and Peter kind of pulls it back and says, wait, are you really going to wash my feet? Or, or maybe instead of pulling it back, he kind of you know, nudges his hand away like, Jesus, are you really, really going to wash my feet? And look at Jesus' response in verse 7. Verse 7, Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but, but later you're going to understand. He says, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Peter had no idea what was about to happen. He had no idea why Jesus was doing that. And really, the truth of the matter is, none of the disciples really knew what was about to happen. Later on that night, uh, they, they sit around after Jesus washes their feet. They sit around talking. Jesus teaches them a bunch of stuff. And after teaching them all this stuff, in, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 14, verse 29, Jesus says, I've told you now, or I've told you all this stuff now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe. He finally tells them like, why he's doing the things he's doing and why he's saying the things that he's saying. And he's telling them so that like, when it finally happens, they'll know like, why he did all this stuff. But the reality is, the events that Jesus is referring to, which are what? The crucifixion and the resurrection, they didn't really know. Like, they didn't know that was going to happen. And so again, because they didn't know it was going to happen, they still didn't understand, even after Jesus says this in chapter 14, they still didn't understand why he was doing and saying the things that he was doing and saying. And so Peter, still not understanding, after Jesus says, look, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. He, verse 8, you see what he says? He says, no. He says, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And so Jesus answers Peter. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, again, he like pulls his feet back, like almost now aggressively. He says, Jesus, you're not washing my feet. You're my master, you're my teacher. That's kind of the attitude he has. He's like, this is inappropriate. You're not going to do it. And so then Jesus says, look, unless I wash you, then you have no part with me. And I'm not sure Peter really understood what Jesus was saying at this point. But I, I, I know, you can tell, and judge by Peter's response, you can tell that Peter heard Jesus say, look, if, if this doesn't happen, then you have no part with me. In other words, this relationship that we've got going on here doesn't continue. So you can judge by Peter's response here in a second that he really did care about his relationship with Jesus. He cared about that deep bond that he had with him. And he didn't want anything to come in front of, or come in between he and Jesus. And so that's why he responds like he does in verse 9. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He says, look, all right, if this is going to come between us, I don't like it, but don't just wash my feet. Wash everything. Wash my hands. Wash my head. Take that bucket, dump it on me, and start scrubbing Jesus. Now, you fast forward a, a few hours. So Jesus washes all the disciples' feet, and it probably took a little while for him to do that. And after, they washes, after he washes their feet, they sit down, they have this meal together. And as they're sitting and eating, they have some conversation. He teaches them some stuff. And all of a sudden, their time together is rudely and abruptly interrupted. And Jesus is arrested, and he's taken and put on trial, and he's found guilty. 
and he's sentenced to death. After he's sentenced to death, he's taken, he's, he's stripped of everything he has, he's mocked, he's beaten, and eventually he's hung up on a cross, all within a, sp- a period of about 24 hours. And then after he dies on the cross in just a couple hours, about three days later, he resurrects from the dead. All that right after this event in chapter 13. So the question I think we've got to come to is this. How, how does the, what happened on the cross bring understanding to John chapter 13? Because remember, Jesus said in, in, in chapter 13 and 14, he said, you don't understand now, but you will later. And in chapter 14, he says, I'm doing all this stuff so that you will understand once all, this other thing, all these other things happen. So the disciples, once the crucifixion happened and the resurrection happened where he rose from the dead, at that point, it must have began to click for them what was happening in chapter 13, right? Well, John, I can tell you this. John, the dude who wrote this, he's writing this as one who finally understood the significance of what was taking place here in chapter 13. And that's why he includes some of the details that he includes here. Go back to verse 1. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, it was just before the Passover feast. The fact that all of this occurred before and during the Passover feast was extremely significant. What was the Passover feast? The Passover feast, it was, it was really the first Passover took place when the Israelites were still in Egypt. And it was, when, it was right before God set them, free from captivity, set them free from captivity in Egypt. And he asked them, he told them all, look, go out, find a perfect, unblemished lamb. Take it into your household and keep it for a few days. Just long enough to where you kind of get close to it, you know, like a, like a puppy dog. Fluffy, white, little, cute lamb. And after you get close to this fluffy, white, little, cute lamb, then take it and cut, cut its throat. And take the blood that spills out from its throat and paint or, or wash or wipe it, however you want to phrase it, over your doorframe of your house. And then he says, after you do that, that night, he says, I'm going to come through the land of Egypt and I'm going to kill every firstborn male that is, that is in existence in that area. And so God does that. He comes through and he kills every firstborn male except for the ones that were in the households that had the blood of the lamb over the doorframe. And it was this event that eventually led, or quickly led, really, to the Israelites being set free from captivity in Egypt. And so from this point on, every year the Israelites celebrated this Passover feast during the first month of their year to remember what God had done and how he had set them free from captivity. But here's the question I want to ask, and here's the question I really want you to think about. Why, why did God bother to set the Israelites free from Egypt? Think about that for a second. Why do you think he bothered to do that? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, answers it very clearly. It says this, Because he, or because God, loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. The reason that he did it is because he loved them. And so the timing here in chapter 13 is stinking perfect. Because here they are, they're about to celebrate this Passover feast. They're about to celebrate this Passover celebration. But now Jesus is going to take that and he's going to completely redefine it. He's going to completely redefine what this entire celebration is about. Because just as in the Old Testament, this cute little lamb, or the, the, the blood of this cute little lamb, eventually would set them free from captivity in Egypt. In the New Testament now, in John chapter 13 and beyond, the sacrifice and the blood of the lamb, capital L, would forever set them free from captivity to sin. And so here, now you got to ask this question. Okay, so in the Old Testament, why did God bother to set them free from captivity in Egypt? Here you got to ask, okay, New Testament, now, our day, why did Jesus, 
bother to do this. Romans 5.8 says this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then later on in Romans 8, he says, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's now no condemnation. There's nobody, nobody has to pay the penalty for this sin that's in their life that they're held captive by as long as they're covered by the blood of this lamb who is Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, it goes on to say, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The reason that Jesus did this is because he loved them. And so you get to John 13, 3, and John 13, 3 says, Jesus knew, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The reason that Jesus did this was because of his love. Because of his love, Jesus stripped himself of all of his greatness as the Son of Man and as the Son of God. Taking off that outer garment. Because of his love, he stripped himself of all of his greatness as the creator and the maker of the universe. And because of his love, he stripped himself of his perfect and like totally awesome place in heaven. Because of his love, he stripped himself of, his, of the glory that came with being the ruler of the world and and the superior being in all the universe. And not only did he lower himself to the lowest place of being a a foot-washing servant, but he went to the cross feeling every slap of the whip when he was beat. And he went to the cross feeling every bit of pain when they took that crown of thorns and slammed it on his head and dug into his forehead. And he went to the cross feeling every bit of them driving those nails into his hands and into his feet as they just scraped by the nerves, the major nerves that run through that part of your hand and arm. And he went to the cross feeling the pain of slowly suffocating to death in the crucifix position. All of that. Because of what he says in verse 8. To Peter, he says, unless I wash you, You have no part with me. And he's not saying, Peter, I need to wash your feet. He's not saying to you and me, unless I wash your feet. He's not talking about our feet. He's talking about our hearts. He's saying, look, unless I wash your hearts, unless you let me wash your hearts with the blood of the lamb, with my blood that he shed on the cross, with his blood that he shed on the cross, unless we let him wash him with that, we have no part with him. Just like the Israelites would not be set free from captivity in Egypt unless they covered their doorframe with the blood of the lamb, we too have no part with Jesus unless we allow him to wash us. And that is what this entire book is about. I mean, really, that's what all of history amounts to. This story of God's quest to reunite himself with his people. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how there's one word that forever altered history. There was one word that caused or that led Jesus to wash these disciples' feet. There's one word that led Jesus to go to the cross, and that word was love. I mean, in this moment, he goes from from king to servant. He goes from this transcendent God to this love-struck Savior. 
In this moment, the God of the universe, he defines where he wants this relationship to go, where he wants that relationship, your relationship with him to go. He defines that in this moment. He says clearly, these are my intentions. I love you, he says. This is the ultimate DTR. And here's what we need to see about a DTR. There's there's no such thing as a DTR that's just like a one-person conversation. Unless the person's crazy and they think they have this, you know, imaginary girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever. Every DTR, there's two parties involved. Every DTR, there's two parties involved. There's two parties involved in this conversation. And so over here, you have this one person, and this one person says to the other, look, this is how I feel. I'm laying it all out there. I, I love you. I care about you. This is what I want. And this person over here, once that person lays it out there, initiates the DTR, a response is required. And so you either say, yes, I feel the same way, or you say, no, I don't feel the same way. But there's really a third response, too, and the third response is you can just stand there, you can sit there, and you can say nothing. Or you can try and skirt around the answer or be ambiguous in your response. But you know what? When you do that, even if you're sitting there in total silence, your response is still the same as the second response, which is no. And that's what we're seeing. When we look at the cross This is what's happening. Jesus, he is getting up there. He's laying it all out, and he's saying, this is how I feel. And a response is demanded because he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And here's the beautiful thing about this. If you don't hear anything else that I said, you've got to hear this. You've got to, got to, got to. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, right? You got that part. You got it? Nod your head. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Okay, the feet of his disciples were disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. They'd been walking around for hours and their feet were caked in mud, caked in dirt, but I guarantee you that wasn't all that was wrong with them. They had toes that were ingrown. There was bacteria and fungus and weird things all growing on their feet. These feet were absolutely disgusting. I guarantee you Jesus didn't just come up and just drop a little water on it, and the mud came rolling off. It wasn't like that. He had to get down on his hands and knees, and he had to scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub. Their feet were disgusting, but even though they were disgusting, Jesus still got down, and he washed them until they were clean. It does not matter how disgusting you are. It does not matter how dirty your heart is. It does not matter how gross your past is. It doesn't matter how nasty your present is. Jesus is standing right here in front of you, and he's saying, let me wash your feet. So we're like one month away from celebrating the most significant day in history. And my prayer is simply this, is that we would see that this is the ultimate DTR. And every DTR demands a response. Some of you have said yes to that. Some of you said no to that. And some of you, and be, hear me out on this one, because this is the deception one. This is the, the deceiving one. Some of you haven't said anything to that, or you've been ambiguous in response. You know what I mean by ambiguous? You know what ambidextrous is? Ambidextrous. 
you're like right-handed and left-handed or you just can't choose between the two. I don't know how that works. But ambiguous is it's like you don't really, you kind of skirt around it, you know, very political in your response, tactful. Some of you have said yes, some of you said no. And I have no doubt that some of you have not responded or you've skirted around the answer. And when you do that, you might as well just say no. And so my prayer tonight, like tonight, is that you would say yes. You look at what he says. Verse 8, Peter says no. You will never wash my feet. And I don't know if that was pride in Peter. We saw, we see in other places he's pretty stubborn. So I don't know if that's his pride. If it's your pride, you need to get it out of the way. But he says, no, 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 Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And then Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So once Peter heard that and really understood what Jesus was saying, he says, well, Jesus, don't just wash my feet. Wash everything. And I pray that you would say the same tonight as well.